You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Tuesday, October the 5th. After a damp start, it's brightened up somewhat here in TW11 and plenty to talk about today. Before we begin, however, our thoughts are first with Matt Griffiths, the jumps jockey, the grade one winning jumps jockey, who is in a stable but critical condition in hospital in Bristol, having been involved in a fatal car accident on Exmoor on Sunday. Uh, Clearly, we are thinking of you, Matt, and your family today. In a little while, we'll be reflecting further on last Sunday's Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe and what might be next for the first six or seven home. I'll also be talking to trainer Edo McGuinness, who enjoyed his first Group 1 winner. With a case of you, that horse might be bound for California now. We'll be discussing John Berry's dissatisfaction with the stewards at Pontefract yesterday and also Aidan O'Brien's comments on similar issues over the weekend. And much later, I'll be talking to John O'Connor of Ballylinch Stud, who has a serious draft of yearlings going through the ring at Tattersall's Book One Sale, which begins today, as you will well know now, because the anticipation to it has been so fevered. Big money is expected to change hands. Sheikh Mohammed and John Magna, the two big superpowers in the global sport, have been seriously visible over the last couple of days in Park Paddocks. But what, Lydia Hislop, is the next few days going to tell us about the state of the industry globally? complicated answer to that really isn't it uh it will rely on a lot of big spenders clashing and certainly in the racing post today they're anticipating john magna and sheikh mohammed set for a bidding fee shades of the 1980s um sheikh mohammed has uh, re-emerged in in recent weeks um you tell me that there was no sign of him at goths or previous sales he is very much present for book one, as is Jog Magna, so people are expe- expecting some sort of clash. And of course, um, Shane Mohammed's Godolphin, uh, with their refound status globally, um, particularly in Britain as well, under Charlie Appleby, um, will, will be approaching these sales with more confidence than perhaps they have done um, in the years past or in recent years past. Uh, also, it'll be an indicator about uh, what British racing can expect. It'll be interesting to see how many of the uh, choice pedigrees that come under the hammer this week, how many of those horses actually stay in training in Britain. And even if they do stay in training or start to start training in Britain, rather, I should say, and even if they do start training in Britain, whether once they have identified themselves of, as being of major talent, whether they are then whipped away to race in more lucrative jurisdictions around the world that concern that so many people including myself have about this uh, the British racing industry currently given its finances as compared with other jurisdictions around the globe whether its uh, immediate future is to become a nursery for the world. Uh, And that is all all the starker if horses are exported straight away if the end user of a, a lot of these very expensive yearlings that we're anticipating being sold this week are American or Australian, or they're going straight to the Middle East. Likelihood is they're going to America. Yeah, and if they, if they go there, there straight away, I mean, at least if, if they start training over here um, with people who are investing, investing in British racing, it means that if they are then sold on, the likelihood or the hope is that the money uh, accrued from that sale means that they will be reinvested in British racing 
Um, so that that's, you know, can be deemed to be a positive, albeit for racing itself, certainly in the uh, three-year-old plus area or the latter stage of the three-year-old career and as a four-year-old and probably p- particularly maybe increasingly in middle distances, we're beginning to get weaker. I mean, there's interesting comments um, from a German standpoint about what um, middle distance racing in France and Ireland and Britain looks like compared to where it was before and whether perhaps we um, overestimate the strength of our, our middle distance competition uh, vis-a-vis specifically Germany, where they have so much more focus on middle distances these days, as does Japan, than uh, Britain, Ireland and France, I'm being sweeping here, uh, do with more focus towards um, early speed increasingly in those areas, whereas Germany and Japan focus on that, um, that stamina, that developing, maturing stamina, and that is bringing them you know, increasingly good results. And um, they're looking at us and sort of seeing a, a shift, the shift in the sands. There are so many different things that are at play here. So interesting point. I, I, somebody posted on Twitter this morning, I have to find it again, a, a clip of the Tassel sales from uh, nearly 50 years ago. And the voiceover was saying, and nearly 50% of these will be exported overseas. And I'm thinking, what well, is this just not cyclical? Do, what, do we over worry about these things? Do, you know, in 30 years time, will it just be uh, us going to America and plundering all the bloodstock there like Vincent O'Brien did? It could be. Uh, you, can't, you can't count that out. And in many ways, let's hope that is the case. But I think the, the international scene has changed that since then, since the, the late 60s, there are so many emerging nations with very deep pockets uh, that are wishing to invest in their racing and wishing to have um, globally relevant racing, that there is so much more competition for these uh, choice courses, these choice bloodlines about where they start racing and where they uh, develop to their peak. And uh, it is decreasingly likely to my mind, unless British racing focuses on its better races and make sure that they are properly funded, it, for, for Britain to be able to, to, to play at that top table in the way it has enjoyed previously. So, I mean, it's, this, this should be a, a major focus for the sport because so many, for the British racing, because so much of its uh, finances are, are hinge upon this. I, I, as I think I've said before, this is often perceived to be an elitist argument, but it's absolutely the opposite. It's the most democratic argument going because if... Uh, people, if the, if the ordinary person, the ordinary racing fan is not engaged with British racing and doesn't feel it's as good as it was or as globally relevant as it was, then the whole thing starts unravelling from that point. Now stand by for the drum roll. If you were listening yesterday, you will want to know where Torquato Tasso features now in the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. And he is at... Number 15. So the TRC computer has recognised the performance of serious merit, has moved him up from 44 to 15. He has also dropped Adair Hurricane Lane Antonawa, and reasons for that will be clear when we speak with James about this on Friday. So Torquato Tasso at number 15. So Lydia, let's try and play what next for the first six or seven home in the arc. Torquato Tasso, first of all, do we expect to see him again after the owner's comments yesterday? 
Well, the only possibility that has been mooted is for the Japan Cup, which you can see uh, as a logical send-off to broaden his international appeal as a sire. But equally, he could be heading uh, towards stud after that career best performance in what going into the race everybody had said was one of the deepest arcs for many 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 years and then when, when there was a 72 to 1 winner <laughs> people wondered whether that was really the case I mean clearly uh, there were um, they were te- there were di- difficult conditions underfoot to, to deal with and there was a steady pace but nonetheless uh, Torquato Tasso was completely dominant at the end he was winning going away he was. Uh, are you surprised that the Timeform, August Timeform organisation, have recommended that he goes to stud because he's unlikely to surpass this effort? Um, well, I mean, whether he's likely to surpass that effort is a moot point. He probably isn't, is he? Because he's not really going to be meeting as deep and broad opposition in the Japan Cup as he would be here. I mean, if we're saying that the arc is, is rare and these kind of ratings are built on the strength in depth uh, of the, of a field and also the performance therein, um, then it's likely that he probably isn't going to be able to replicate the, the this this performance in in that particular regard. So I can understand why that might be the case. Okay, let's talk about some of the beaten horses. Tanawa to Delmar seems an obvious one. It does, doesn't it? Um, she won the Breeders' Cup turf last year in Keeneland. How does Keeneland and Delmar compare? Will she be at ho- as at home at Delmar as she would have been at Keeneland? Well, it's worth noting that Keeneland is not the most sweeping of US turf tracks. It's, it's, not, it's not like comparing Belmont or, or Woodbine in Canada to, to Delmar. So it, it, she's managed to go around tight enough turns. And a mile and a half gives you a little bit more opportunity to settle in and, and, and sort of and sort of pace yourself a little bit. Uh, I, I wouldn't have thought she'd be wanting to be quite so far off the pace around Delmar as well, she last year. Well, that's the key, isn't it? I mean, she's she was slowly into stride again, quite markedly so, uh, in the arc. Uh, and that is going to be her Achilles heel in an American context, particularly in the way that you've just described. Uh, the third and the fourth Hurricane Lane and Adair, there was just a hint Adair might have another go. You can see it, can't you? Because, unfortunately, we didn't see him, him, him in his prep race for the arc in September. He had that leg infection. So he hasn't raced between July and October between the King George and uh, the arc. So that does open the door, you would think, for a winter campaign, potentially, for him. Hurricane Lane, conversely, given he's had such a busy end to his season, taking in the St. Ledger and the Ark, performing so creditably in both winning the St. Ledger, finishing a really good third um, in the Ark. James Doyle even saying that he briefly thought about whether he was going to win the race on board the horse. You can't see him them going to the well with him again. The really great thing was that Charlie Appleby has uh, spoken as if it is far more likely than not that both of them will stay in training as four-year-olds and he sees them both as being the kind of horse that will improve as they get older. Which is great news. And the next two home were Sealyway and Stowfall. I'd have thought Sealyway might have a bash at the champion stakes. He's in it. He's entered. He's a 25 to one shot. Okay. That would, that would, be, that would be great to see. Um, he was probably a bit too far back in the way that the race developed. Um, and I think he ran very well indeed. He was a very big price going into the race as well, given the form that he had. So he would be a welcome addition to Champions Day. And Snowfall, uh, Aidan O'Brien is talking about having a look at the Breeders' Cup for her. Um, I wonder whether the Philly and Mare stakes on British Champions Day might also be a, an option. But 
that would be ground dependent. I know that Snowfall managed to dash through rain softened ground in the Oaks, but Aidan O'Brien was seeing to suggest that the art ground was a another territory um indeed another territory beyond um that kind of ground and british champions day often has very testing ground indeed so maybe that will be the deciding factor for snowfall last time the british cup philly and mare turf was run at del mar it was run over nine furlongs they've changed it this year so it's 11 furlongs at, uh, mm-hmm. at del mar so that would play in snowfall's favor The Arc wasn't the only Group 1 at Longchamp on Sunday, of course. The Group 1 Prix de Labbe saw a first Group 1 success for A Case of You, trained by Ado McGuinness. I caught up with Ado a little earlier on this morning, and I began by asking him how this great victory had affected the mood in his stable. Look, it's unbelievable. Uh, we're all still on a high, and we just, look, we knew we had the horse capable of doing it, but until he does it, it's... The stuff of dreams and Sunday was something that you would dream of thinking it might never happen, you know, and it was just a fantastic day and everybody in the yard at home that worked so hard from Stephen, my assistant to my wife and everyone, you know, it's a big family affair as well as the guys that muck out and they're just a great bunch of people and I'm privileged to have them all, you know. And this horse is only a three-year-old. He's still at the beginning of his career. And he'd had a, a broadly progressive season with just a couple of bumps along the road. Could you be confident going into a Sunday or not? I thought he was very... He was a little unlucky on the flying five. First time ever over five. But he, he just wasn't right when we went to Ascot. He just was he, he We had a little bit of a setback with him about three weeks out. And we thought we had him right. You know, there was only one Commonwealth Cup for this horse, and we sort of felt he wasn't right. We gave him a good long break after it, and we had a lovely comeback run before the Flying Five. And I knew when I was walking home, and even when we'd taken him away to walk him, he was, he was definitely getting faster, like he was just improving so much. And he walks with Harry's bar, and, you know, Harry couldn't get near him, and he ain't no bad horse. Harry's bar, like he's 105, you know, 105 sprinter, solid, and... We just knew he, he was, he'd improved. And even after the flying five, Ron and Rodham walked for me there before. We went out to France and he said, hello, this fellow's gone better. So we, we were co- quietly confident, but I wasn't, uh, there was no pressure on us. And, you know, we let the horse do the talking and thankfully he did. And he can clearly get through the mud okay, but is that what he needs as he looks towards international targets? People will say, oh, he's done all his winning in soft ground. Is that crucial to him? No, because he, he won one night in Dundalk. He didn't really get credit for the first night he ever won in Dundalk for me. And he beat Logo Hunter and Jack Davis in Philly, and he beat them four and a half lengths. And he was giving them all, I think he was giving them six pound or seven pound that night. So... At that, if you follow his form the whole way through, like he was giving weight to them, I gave weight to the horses again when he beat them in the Group Three. So, he, and I definitely like he's not he he handles the muck, but I think he he's a, his action will tell you that he will go on better ground. So you've got a ticket to the Breeders' Cup if you should if you should want it. It sounds as though you're quite enthusiastic about that project. Yes, definitely. Um, we're, we're very. We, we'll definitely make a final decision this week, but. At this moment in time, we're ninety percent sure. If he like, he's just come off the box there this morning. And he's bouncing, and at this moment in time, with no mishaps, he will probably head there straight up. You know, and we've Hong Kong to look at, we've Dubai to look at, and 
you know, there's so many different targets we have with a good sprinter like this. And as I said, I'm not afraid to go anywhere with him because I know how good he is. Have you have you had runners in America before? I know you've had runners in the Middle East and with some success as well. I've never been to America before. Nick. <laughs> never mind have a runner. So it'll be new to us all. I've never had a runner in America. Had plenty of runners down the Middle East, and you know I'm really looking forward to taking this horse there. And uh, he definitely won't disgrace himself. That's for sure. How how long is the list of volunteers to be his groom in Del Mar? Well, I can't break what's not, what's not broken. I'm going to have to leave the same, but I know there's an awful lot of people. They probably want, probably two people want to go with them to mind them. But um, you know, it's it's not. I'm not saying it's a once in a lifetime for 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 us. But when we have a horse of this capability, we have to try and showcase them. You know, around the world. Well, I I wish you all the best at, at Del Mar, Ado. What's the rest of the season looking like for you? Domestically, with with your team for the for the big races towards the end of the year. Yeah, we we have um, Harry heading to the Mercury in in Dundalk at the end of the month. That's that's Harry's bar, Harry's yeah. Harry's bar. We've laughed a minute. Entered up in York next Saturday. Wouldn't want as much rain. We're just going to sit and see what way the weather is. You wouldn't want it heavy, heavy. But he, he's a very nice handicap mark at the moment. He was unlucky last week up the current in the, in the Joe McGrath. He, he just got hemmed in at the wrong time, he finished very strong. We have the three Dooley Torbred horses entered for the Balmoral and Ascot the week after next, so we've a lot of travelling to do still and you know, I'm looking forward to it and we've plenty of handicappers at home here to run away for the rest of the season. So hopefully we can, you know, bag another few winners. We've had the best season we've ever had domestically at home. I think we've won four Premier handicaps and We have a group three and a listed up as well, so you know we're, we're very, very, very happy as, as well as our group one the other day. So the season couldn't be going any better for a yard like ours. Ada McGuinness there. Now, Lydia, back to today's news. And John Berry, the Newmarket trainer, wasn't very happy with the stewards at Pontefract yesterday. What happened? This happened in the two mile two furlong handicap, um, in which which was won by Winford, ridden by Kevin Stott and trained by Rebecca Menzies. Uh, John trained the second Deeran that was trained by Faye McManaman. The two horses turned for home uh, together. It seemed, to my interpretation, became pretty apparent that Winford was on top. But as so often they do in testing ground at Pontefract, they came towards the standside rail. Um, and there was interference between Winford. He caused interference uh, with Derham. Um, Kevin Stott, who initially had his whip in his right hand, switched it to the left hand and his horse jinked left as a result of uh, the whip being used once. And then he used it again in the left hand and that second jink, sorry, jinking right, um, that second jinking right caused Fame McManaman to stop riding on Derham. Um, I don't think it made the difference between victory and defeat. You know, had um, Durham had an inter- uninterrupted run to the line, might he have finished in front of Winford? I think the answer to that is clearly no. However, uh, there were lots of things that happened sub- subsequently. John Berry was talking about uh, wanting to raise an objection due to the COVID rules. He was having to rely on fame at Manaman to do that. And she raised the objection with the social distancing social distancing officer unwittingly rather than the clerk of the the scales so that wasn't officially recorded Um, John felt it was intentional interference he also complained on the day uh, that 
the the call for the results standing had been uh, announced before the inquiry had concluded but it's difficult to judge from this distance but uh, the process of, of stewards inquiries they will first ascertain in interference instances such as this whether the result has been affected and once they ascertain that that is not the case, they will then announce that um, the result stands before they then go on to unpick uh, whether a, a, uh, an offence has taken place, um, whether a breach of the rules has happened. Here they decided to ban Kevin Stock for three days for careless riding. Um, and I... <laughs> Now, I can see I can see John Berry's point, not in the point where he should have got the race, um, not in the point that exactly it was intentional interference, more that I think this is the kind of professional foul that uh, sports people do when they understand how refereeing rules are tend to be interpreted. And in that play, in the interference rules between careless and improper riding, I feel that there has developed over past seasons um, a tendency to... Um, allow inevitable interference to to allow your horse to drift in in the knowledge that uh, that if you cause intimidation or minor interference to the main rival thereby weighing the likelihood of you winning more greatly in your favor that that is most likely to be interpreted as careless riding for which you'll get a small ban if anything at all. And um, I'm not criticising any of the um, particular individuals here. I just feel and have felt for some time that that's an area of the rules or an interpretation of the rules that needs to be addressed because it is um, affecting the, not necessarily the outcome of races, uh, but, but uh, potentially the outcome of races and certainly how clean they look. Yeah, certainly, and, and how safe they are as well, crucially. And, and this is a, a point that Aidan O'Brien was developing richly in his piece with Richie Forrestal at the weekend that we uh, have discussed, but only touched on very briefly. Yes, and he was uh, particularly looking um, at Shane Foley. He also mentioned his own Ryan Moore for the um, drifting uh, right into Tarnawa on St Mark's Basilica in the Irish Champion Stakes. And he felt um, that the IHRB uh, need to take uh, more notice about this. Um, he advocates a more un uncompromising approach with riders over interference. He said uh, that um, Irish racing is worse than anywhere else in this regard. Um, is that true? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's quite bad in Britain as well. Yeah, I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to argue the toss between the two jurisdictions, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the, the interference rules are, are, are pretty much, and, and their applications seem to me to be, to be very similar with each other. So, no, I wouldn't argue the toss in that direction. He was talking about Shane Foley's ride on No Speak Alexander in the Matron Stakes, which he felt deserved a month off, which would be a, a marked change in terms of the penalties served for this kind of offence. Um, Niall Cronin, who's the IHRB's communications manager, has commented that they continually review all penalties and that there is a current review of the careless, improper and uh, dangerous riding categories that, that started in the summer and it is ongoing. So uh, Aidan O'Brien, clearly a powerful voice entering into the um, noise around this. Uh, worth staying on the Valley Doyle theme because Aidan O'Brien's also voiced his displeasure in the same piece with the stringent uh, scintigraphy checks that have to be undertaken if you want to send a horse to Australia. We've discussed this quite a bit on podcasts past, particularly with reference to the Melbourne Cup Carnival. But the administrators of the Cox Plate have uh, got involved here, Lydia. Yes, Mooney Valley Racing Club. Um, and they have uh, given notice that they're going to be requesting 
um, an urgent review into the mandatory scintigraphy um, test, the scans for international runners, because it's, it's deemed to have had an impact uh, on the European participation in the Cox Plate. Nate O'Brien, in an interview in Sunday's Racing Post, spoke out about it. He thinks that uh, these tests are excessive. Um, it was, of course, the fatal injury to last year's um, Derby winner, Anthony Van Dyke, in the Melbourne Cup that prompted a wide-ranging report, report um, in response that led to major changes in the pre-race process and in turn deterred European runners from the Spring Carnival because their profiles were particularly um, scrutinised as a result of these new additional rules. And so the racing clubs essentially do not like what the regulators, the Victoria Racing Club, are doing and will be seeking a review at the end of the current carnival. The Jockeys' Championship. Uh, there's nine in it between Asheen Murphy and William Buick. Uh, Asheen Murphy is, uh, trying, I think, trying to keep the pressure on himself by suggesting that, that he's under threat. I guess you have to, if you're in front, you have to keep sort of giving yourself a kick and saying it's not over yet. Yes. I mean, you know, once his um, riding career is over, a long time in, in the future, I, I hope, uh, he could... Um, get a, a role as a screenwriter for a, a long-running American soap or, or equivalent, couldn't he? Because he, in terms of leaving the episode with, in a, with a sense of jeopardy, he's very, very good indeed. Um, he, as you said, he leads William Buick by nine winners with 12 days remaining. Asheen Murphy looking for a third straight title. Um, they each had a winner at Lingfield yesterday, but Asheen building up the tension by saying he's going to have fewer chances than William Buick. He's on four favourites a day from now on till the end of the of the season, and I'm on one. And they do battle at Kempton today and tomorrow, at Chelmsford next, and then at Newmarket on Friday and Saturday for future Champions Weekend. So the excitement being ramped up by Oshin. I'm... I'm I'm, 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 I'm teasing, I'm teasing because it has been really good, the, uh, the competition between Asheen and William, you know, two top flight jockeys really going for it has been, I mean, this is the, this is the kind of championship battle that the, those people who shifted the start and finish times for the Jockeys Championship in Britain envisaged. They felt it was the early start, the long lag, uh, afterwards, after all the major um, races in Britain, which saw the key jockeys, the top jockeys with the biggest jobs, going elsewhere around the world uh, and thereby potentially sacrificing any chance in the jockey, of the jockey's title. This this kind of competition between Asheen and William is exactly what they um, changed the rules for. It is Tuesday, so we go around the world of Bloodstock with our friends at Weatherbees, who research and edit more sales catalogue pedigrees than anyone in the world from a huge database of over 2 million thoroughbreds. Tattersalls, whose book one sale gets underway today, as you know, is among their clients. And it's really good to welcome John O'Connor from Bally Lynch Stud to the show. John's consigning a dozen yearlings at this sale uh, today and over the next two or three days and is is with me now. Uh, yearlings by Lope de Vega, one of John's own stallions by Dubawi, Australia, Churchill. So lots to look forward to, John. But yeah, Bally Lynch is such a well-established farm with some wonderful stallions. The first thing I'd like you to do is just give me a, a little bit of history of this of this farm because it's very well established. Well, Bally Lynch was founded as a stallion farm in 1914 um, when Major Dermot McCalmont wished to retire his outstanding racehorse, the Tetrarch. And so he retired and he built a stallion unit and, uh, you know, a home set up for uh, for a stud farm. 
Astani Lynch, where he already um, had released the farm from the Earls of Carrick. So the initial buildings are all still intact and we're using them, and uh, they were very well built, as you can imagine. And uh, the Tetrarch went on to become a champion sire, even though he wasn't the most prolific in terms of numbers, he got outstanding quality, and his son Tetratima subsequently followed him uh, to, to Bally Lynch, and his grandson, Mr. Jinx, also stood there, and all three of them now are, are buried at Bally Lynch. But probably the Tetrarch had his biggest influence in the breeding world through his daughter, uh, Mumtaz Mahal, who had an enormous influence on the on international breeding, um, becoming the granddam of both a uh, royal charger, who subsequently and and Nasrallah, and both of those had a huge influence uh, on international breeding. I, I, uh, so, sorry, John. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, I mean, and and a little bit later on, there was another very important international star, another grey, stood at Bally Lynch, a horse called Fortino, who. Um, Sired Caro during his time at Valley Lynch, so um, it's uh, a, a farm with a very rich history. And uh, when I first uh, visited Valley Lynch, I was I was a, a student at the time, and it it was um, where Sassafras was standing in the Tetrix box, and uh, so he was probably the maybe he was the first predilect um, to stand there. And obviously, we've got another another one currently, but. Um, that's some of the history, and the, eventually the um, the farm was sold in, in 1988 by the McCalmont family, and was bought by um, a man called Tim Mahoney, who, you know, he then subsequently hired me to re-establish the farm as a, as a stallion farm and improve my farm because the farm itself had been sold uh, without any stock, so it was a it was a project to be started from scratch. I've asked this question to a, an, a lot of uh, proprietors of, of big stallion stations around the world who have a, a similar history, have that kind of heritage. And and I'll ask you the same question. To what extent does that heritage, to the fact you saw an art winner standing in that box when you were a young man, the fact that you know there have been horses of, uh, of great repute standing there for, for over a century, to what extent does that inform the way you go about your work? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I think it does inform your 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 approach. Um, I, I took the view that you know it it had an important historical legacy as a stallion farm, and therefore wished to re-establish it as a stallion farm, which is not a simple thing to do. Um, but uh, we started off uh, in Tim Mahoney's time, and and the first horse we stood there was was Bob Back, who who had kind of followed me from. Uh, from his first season at Barodestad, when I moved to, to Bally Lynch, uh, Bob Back followed me down, and in, in his first season at Bally Lynch, he actually uh, sired a St. Ledger winner in, in Bob's return. And uh, we gradually built the stallion farm from there, and I think we took the view that we had an outstanding you know, stallion facility, and therefore it was a suitable place to invest in, in developing um, a stallion roster, and that's what we've been doing basically in the 30 years since then. What's been your proudest moment in that time? I'm not sure I could pick out any one, um, but I think some of the horses that have stood there have have, um, have done particularly well. And You know, even I, I think I'm particularly proud of how well both Bob Back 
and subsequently King Theatre did, who, who, was, a, who was an exceptional uh, dual purpose sire and ultimately became the elite National Hunt sire, which was champion National Hunt sire five times. And of course, we initially started off with the intention of making him a leading flat star. And um, since then, of course, we've been we've been very lucky. And and Longman came along and and sired, you know, multiple classic winners. And after that, then we had Lope Vega came along and made it, you know made a big impact. Trina Head came and sired a number of you know outstanding sprinters. And um, but probably you know getting Lope de Vega to become uh, champion first crop sire and developing his career is probably probably the pinnacle of what we've done so far. And he's allowed us then to back it up with some some other very very useful younger sires. So he was followed by by Make Believe, who has managed to sire an outstanding uh, racehorse in Mishrif. And backed it up with several other group winners, so um, he's done really well, and he's he's progressing well in his starting career. And he was followed by by New Bay, and New Bay, as we all know, has made a very good start. And um, Saffron Beach at the weekend really crowned that with her, you know, exceptional win in the uh, in the Group One Sun Chariot at, at Newmarket. I'm talking to you at a perfect time, really, and Lope de Vega unsurprisingly responsible for a huge portion of your good-looking draft this week at, at Tattersall's. He is now mentioned in the same breath as all those global elite stallions. He's also attracted massive interest from, from the United States. Is that something that's in any way surprised you or not? I'm not sure if it surprised me, Nick. Um, he's, his record in the United States is is exceptional and um you know we we'd be lucky enough to sell a few nice horses by him to to america including aunt pearl who we sold at this very sale uh two years ago and who went on to win a breeder's cup uh juvenile face and um, interestingly that was our second filly that we sold here at tattersalls to win a breeder's cup juvenile fillies because we had previously sold chrysalium and uh we also sold um, Red Rocks uh, at Goffs, uh, who also won the Breeders' Cup. So we've, we've been looking at the Breeders' Cup, and uh, Lord Vega has now established himself as a leading um, a leading star in the United States. And uh, certainly we get lots of inquiries and visits from um, American breeders. And um, we've been busy with the Logan. We've had lots of, of viewings from the American clients that are here this week. I don't want to shoulder any one of your horses with just huge expectations because I know sales time can be a pressurised one. But as you as you go into this week, uh, who are you expecting the most from? Well, we start off uh, with a very strong um, draft on on day one tomorrow on Tuesday. Um, our very first filly in the ring is the half sister to Saffron Beach by Australia. And she's um, she is a lovely filly, lovely quality filly, and very athletic. So she's uh, obviously a good one to start off with. But she's followed immediately after by Lot Sixteen, who's a very very good looking local de Vega colt out of Faraday Light. So we're making him a half brother to just the judge. And then we go on to Lot Forty Eight, who's another local de Vega colt, and he's out of a uh, multiple stakes winning half sister to Poetic Flair, glamorous approach. So he's just a second fold from a young, really high-quality mare. And then we, we finished the day with 
142 who's uh, Lope de Vega out of Matori Pearl and therefore a full brother to the Breeders' Cup winner Ant Pearl. So we've got a very strong draft on day one and we, we followed that up with plenty of other really high quality colts. Lots to look forward to then for John O'Connor and Bally Lynch stud. Thanks to him. Uh, my thanks to Edo McGuinness earlier in the programme and of course to Lydia who's got a tip for you. I'm going to Leicester for the 322. It's very testing ground there and I think that will suit number two uh, in the breeze. Uh, last time we saw this horse, he finished 12th of 12, beating 14 lengths at Newcastle, which I appreciate is not that auspicious. However, I felt when he won at Newbury in July, he did so quite tidily. He's unexposed at this mile and a half. He's going to enjoy this kind of ground, and I think he's uh, far too big a price. He's around about nine to one the time of um, speaking. Um, obviously, I'm taking it on trust that Roger Charlton has got him fit enough after 68-day break, but I've got no doubt that all of the conditions are in his favour, including his handicap mark. Can you guess where I'm going today? Are you going to Huntingdon? Uh, <laughs> I'm eschewing the big spending glamour of Tassel's Book One for a trip to Huntingdon. I like to keep it real, Lydia. <laughs> Always, Nick. Always. Absolutely. Um, yeah. When's the last time you went to Huntingdon? Uh, not that long ago. Probably like a year ago, I'd say. It's more recently than me. More recently than me. So um, I am looking forward to going to Huntingdon this season. Um, and it's, we're at that, that autumn changeover in the, in the season, aren't we, where we're just seeing the very best two-year-olds signing off. We've got some important international targets beyond British Champions Day and jump racing is starting to bubble under and hence we're getting um, this news mostly good but some negative about what's happening to the horses that we're expecting to star in the uh, jump season upcoming. Yeah. Okay. Huntingdon today for me. Uh, Keeneland tomorrow. I'm not keeping it that real. It's uh, <laughs> Tuesday, Tuesday, October the 5th. We will, uh, we'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.